You're listening to the Strong and Capable podcast with your host, Bridgette Heller. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome to this episode of the Strong and Capable podcast. I'm your host, Bridgette Heller, and I have on today the amazing Mr. Danny Deaton. You want to say hey? Hey, how you doing? <laughs> I'm excited for today's conversation. It's going to be real. It's going to be raw and it's going to be hopefully helpful for those who are seeking in this moment. And I know that Danny, before we start, he says, I'm good with uncomfortable. I was like, cool, me too. Let's do this. <laughs> Let's get uncomfortable. How can we, how can we dig deep? So I'm excited for this conversation for you to hear him. And I'm actually going to start off right out the gate. Danny, I want you to share your story because it is such a, a, a raw and honest story. And I think the audience needs to know who you are so that we can talk real. So would you mind sharing? Why are you here today? How did you get here? What started all this? Yeah, and I'm I'm honored to be here. And to any of those out there seeking some answers and solutions for the situations there, and I hope I can share something that's beneficial today. Um, it's always hard to kind of talk about yourself and tell your story. I'll, I'll keep it brief, but I'm, I'm 46 years old. Currently, I live in Alpine. I have three beautiful children. I have the most incredible rock star queen wife ever. But the road that I had to travel to find her was a difficult one. So life now looks great. We got a dog, a cat, 26 chickens, which I never thought <laughs> one of those would be part of my life, you know, and if you went back to when I was a kid, you know, when you play those games, hey, when you grow up, what are you going to be? Mm -hmm. If we would have played a game and said, hey, when Danny grows up, is he going to, one, go to jail and be incarcerated? Or two, is he going to have a cat? Every person who knows me would have been like, oh, he's getting locked up. He's in a jumpsuit for sure. Well, I ended up doing both. So I I just wanted to quickly share my story. And, and the beginning of my story as a child growing up with my parents and my family, was it was a childhood dream. It was incredible. My life today now is better than I ever dreamed of. But in between, I walked a long, dark and dreary road. And just to kind of sum it up, I was that boy that grew up. I was super active. Back then, there wasn't a diagnosis for a lot of things. I for sure had ADD and ADHD and I couldn't sit still in class and I was restless and rowdy and all those good things. But I did life and I loved it. I excelled in school. I played four different sports. I was an Eagle Scout. I was a pianist. I ended up going on a mission. I was an avid snowboarder, a, a wakeboarder, and I did all the things. I loved girls. I loved socializing. I was a curious boy. I was a little bit rambunctious, but there came a time in my life when I made some bad choices with some friends out of curiosity, dabbled with some alcohol and some drugs, and it kind of sidetracked me for a while however I got to a point fast forward after high school moved to Hawaii with some friends and I had this moment of like clarity where I'm like what am I doing with my life mm -hmm. so I actually came home got my act together when I was like let's see I was I was think I was 22 or 23 years old and I actually um refocused my life and energy and went and served an LDS mission um did that went to school got married, came home, started doing all the things, right? Like, let's go conquer the world. Um, I, had an, I had an injury, an accident, 
and it caused some pain that I was dealing with for a while. I believe that Satan, the opposition is very opportunistic. And mm-hmm. there was a time I was having some struggles in my personal life that I won't get into. I was married at the time. I was young. I was trying all these things. And I had a lot of discomforts that I wasn't really sure what was going on. But I had a friend from my childhood back in my rowdy days who came into my life and introduced something to me, came in a sweet little brown bottle with the white lid from a doctor. And it was a substance called Oxycontin. He took this pill and he broke it in half. And then he took the other half and broke it in half again. So there's this tiny little thing, big enough that if you drop it, you're not going to find it. And when I took that, I instantly, I felt this relief. Now it was masking the pain I had. So I was like, oh, this is great. This is going to help me with the pain that I'm dealing with in my back and whatever. But what it really did is masked a lot of the emotional discomfort and pain that I had that I wasn't even able to articulate. So for the next couple of years, I became a very high functioning addict. I would have never admitted it. No one ever knew. I did all my things. I graduated from college, did all my church duties, civil duties, duties as a family man, and no one knew. The thing about addictions is they're progressive. So there was this large period of my life where I was gradually getting sucked down into a really dark and dreary place. So I'll skip all the details, but I ended up divorced. I ended up homeless. I ended up incarcerated. I ended up with multiple felony possession charges. I had the SWAT team kick in my house. Um, I was in a jail cell withdrawing so hard from the illicit drugs that I was doing, which is where your body starts to shake and tremor and you can't have any control over your body. And I'm in a jail cell in a jumpsuit and the guy in there was so mad because I kept moaning and like crying and he was bashing my head into the, into the concrete floor. And I laid him a pool of my own blood. And it was, it was a moment where I was just like, wow, here I am this broken person And it wasn't long ago that I was just thriving in life. Like I had the most incredible family. I had everything I needed. And I got sucked into into a trap hole that was leading to nowhere but death. And I actually got out of jail. You think I would have gotten help and I didn't. I just kept doing what I was doing. And a few weeks later is when everything changed. I was laying in the basement of of a home. I had two broken legs from getting thrown through the windshield of a car as me and my friend were chasing down the drug dealers, trying to rob them for what they had. He drove me back, put me in the basement of this home. Meanwhile, the night before my father and my brother had had a dream the same night that they were speaking at my funeral. So they knelt in prayer and all day long, they went out looking for me and they ran into that friend who I was with in that accident, who had put me in the basement of that home and at a gas station. And my brother, he knew him. So he tracked him down. He's like, hey, hey, where's, where's Danny? Where's my brother? He was scared. He kind of tried to leave and my brother wouldn't let him. And so he told him where I was. And I was laying in the basement of this dark home. And I, I kind of felt this thing. It's a sacred thing I don't talk about much, but there's this separation where I could actually feel my spirit trying to leave my body. I, I weighed 90 pounds. I was All my veins were black. I was in the basement of this home. I hadn't eaten in many days. I don't know if I'd had water. I shouldn't have been alive. And all of a sudden, laying on this dark floor, I see this door open. And there was just like this ray of light that came across the floor. 
And I, I look up and gosh dang it, I hate saying this every time, but my dad and my brother walked in. Obviously I was so unexpected and I thought I was dreaming. My dad had been doing a lot of work on himself and my family. So he, he was in a good place and he knelt down and just said, Hey, we're here to help. But if you're not ready, I've told God that he can have you. And he left. My dad and my brother looked over me. He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're going to die. So right as they were both walking out the stairs, I just mustered up enough strength and I just yelled, help. My brother actually came back. He's my younger brother. And he scooped me up in his arms like an infant and carried me out of that basement. It began a long journey. It was a rough journey. It included years of probation different programs, institutions. And ultimately, ultimately was like the most raw, vulnerable path to reconnect with God. Because at first, like that was, that was unthinkable. I couldn't even imagine. Mm -hmm. So a lot of hard work, a lot of support from so many people who love me. My goodness, I could have, I could have never done one step without them. And then finally, like for the first time, getting to know my father in heaven and pleading, like latching and leeching onto him with everything I had. So May 1st, 2000, May 1st, 2010. So, um, sorry, May 1st, 2007 was when they found me. And, uh, it's been over 16 years now. So my life today is something I'm proud of. I've worked very hard for, I had to walk through the valley shadow of death to get, but the journey in between the suffering is kind of like, I don't know. I look back and I'm like, I would never have been who I am today. Like I would be half the man. I'd be a shell of a man had I not gone through that. But boy, it was, it was, it was rough. And what's unfortunate is a lot of people get to that point where I was at and they don't make it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. grateful to be here today. And uh, wow. Yeah. I am. I mean, thank you for sharing your story. I think your your story, I'm so glad that you're out there sharing it because it needs to be heard over and over and over because this is a reality that so many people are walking this path right now or some stage of it. And the fact that I just think... Um, like trying to gather my thoughts there's so much there's so much that I think (laughs) but I was thinking about a the courage of your father to walk away that that took so much courage to see the person that he loves so much in this life in this place and to know that it had to be their choice that had to be your choice that is so and to walk away even if I'm sure he wanted to stay. I'm sure there was no part of him that wanted to leave you. Um, yeah. But to be in that he, place to walk away, that takes so much courage on his part. Yeah, courage, faith. And it took a lot of work. Mm-hmm. Like he he mm-hmm. didn't get there overnight. Like there were years of him enabling. And I mean, he used to do things that would like, he would put money under an envelope and tell me I could come by when my mom was asleep and put it under the front mat of the house. And because mm-hmm. I would tell him I was cold and hungry and starving and all this mm-hmm. stuff, right? Like, mm-hmm. but I asked him, it was later on, like in my recovery, I said, how did you ever get to that point? Because he is like my best friend. He's like my hero. He is everything. I talked to him multiple times a day, probably shouldn't as much as I do. But I was like, how'd you do that? 
And he finally got to the point where he realized he was, he was powerless. And he went into mm-hmm. the mountains and like, he, he, he actually spoke out loud to God and was like, you know what, if you need him more than I do, then you can have him. I've done everything I can do. We're ready to help him, but he's got to want it. It was kind of like that yeah. path of reverence he had to go through to have that courage. It's a broken heart and contrite spirit. When you hear that phrase, that's what this is, what you're describing. And I think it's fascinating that he was there, but so were you. And it took different journeys to get to that place. And I think what you just said is what I have been <laughs> learning a lot lately is that I myself am not enough. Then we're so big and I'm so big, strong and capable on affirmations. I'm strong and capable. I'm, I'm worthy. I'm all these things. And you are. And yet life is that hard that you're still not enough, that you have to release it to something else to get through it. Amen. And what I see from this moment with you is that's where that's you had to go to that dark of a place for you to release it. You had to be there. And I'm thankful for you that you allowed yourself to go there because again, talking about bravery and courage, it takes courage to stand up and fight when everything is so dark and so black. And so you made a choice in that moment. You made a choice to live. And I think in today's world, more people are making that choice than we realize, whether it's through addiction or mental health or the beautiful combo that often comes together. Mm -hmm. Um, It is a choice to stand up and fight. And it's a choice to kneel down and release. And you have to do both to get through it. So where did you, you said friends, you already mentioned friends, you already mentioned family. Where did you start? I mean, you had to eat (laughs) getting Mm. real. You had to eat. You had, no, it was the beginning. Yeah. The beginning was so like, it was like just being able to sleep through the night, being able to sit still for more than 10 minutes. Yes. Proper nutrition. I mean, it was baby steps in the beginning. And I came from a very successful family, like the very fluent area, like I, it was a humble process. I had to go through different programs and institutions and, and it, it was really hard. Like I had no one left. Of course, my family was there supporting me and cheering me on, but I had, I had isolated myself from everyone and everything. It was just like, mm-hmm. I, I, I went through medical detox where I was stuck for a long time because I was just so sick. And then I went to a behavioral health treatment center for months. And then after that, I transitioned to another program. And really that every step of that process was just learning how to like, to, to sit in discomfort and to see myself for who I was. And it, it was just incredible, you know, and the program of recovery, regardless of what you, where you go, what facility it is, what the approach is, it's really about reconnecting. They use the term higher power, right? Because a lot of people, it's so intimidating to even put a name on it, but it's reconnecting mm-hmm. and being able to latch on to a power greater than yourself that can restore you to sanity. <clears throat> mm-hmm. The baby steps to get to there is my goodness. But it was a gradual process that required just so much work. And I look back and I was like, gosh, I was just this little punk kid that did really good at everything I tried, like had everything I needed in life. Like everything was super easy and awesome, but it was like, I had to like be reborn again. And I had to literally learn how to like walk again. And that process, 
I know it's easy to say, oh, it made me who I am. I learned so much, but my gosh, like talk about being humble and difficult. Talk about standing up in front of a room and telling people you're a drug addict. How about the first time I went on a date with my wife today is I had nothing. Like I, I had like $30 in my bank account. Like here I am this grown man. And I, it was so humbling every step of the way. Like first time we tried to get a loan for a business and I'm like, years into recovery and they're like oh we can't get you approved because you have a felony on your record i mean just Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. humbling things over and over and over so such a journey yeah the process of un of becoming new like you said in the queen circle my membership we've been having this discussion i love that by the way that is so rad well, I loved so when you right. called your wife a queen. I was like, yes. But yeah. <laughs> um, we've been having this discussion of emotionally, mentally, even sometimes physically, there's different phases of life. And at first, when we're kids, when we're teenagers, what you're describing, you're very successful, we're kind of like the caterpillars. We literally were acted upon versus intentionally acting because we're exploring the world. And so we don't have this frame of mind of like, this is who I am and I make my choices as much, especially if you don't have some kind of a school organization or some kind of culture you're involved in where it helps you define that, then you're really being acted upon. You take in these things and you're just eating it all, eating it all. And sometimes we find ourselves in bad situations because of that. Like you said, you just ended up here unintentionally. It was just kind of how life went. And because you were just consuming it all, then you consumed the wrong thing and then it took you down a path. And so once you get to that place, you have to undo. It's the process of undoing. And that's the chrysalis stage where you have to become literal goo to become something new. And that process is so humbling and awkward and uncomfortable. It's not uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. It's not comfortable to be unmade. You you built yourself into one person, good or bad. And to undo that is so wildly uncomfortable. And I always tell the queens, if you're willing to go that there that means it's curiosity curiosity heals us it's a a desire for something different and we have to be curious about what that possibility could be before we can start to heal we have to want it we have to have a desire for it and then of course once you've become something new within that container then you have to go out and do something now you have purpose like you okay so you've you unmade yourself, you've become, and now you feel the need when you're flying to fly means you're, you're spreading your wings and you have a purpose and you have to help others because everybody is going through this process in some way at some part of their life. And they need to know it's possible. They need to know it's possible to fly. All day long. I just have these experiences with people where they just, they have no idea that there's so many other people dealing with it and they all think they're the only one. And it's just crazy. What are some of the statistics? Do you have those off the top of your head of how many people are dealing with this? Well, I mean, if you go look, the, the government websites out there that, that track these statistics, they're always a couple years behind. And the part yeah. that gets me really upset, for example, right now, the number one leading cause of death, individuals 18 to 45, and I'm talking by a mile, the number one is overdose to fentanyl. Mm. And we're talking of everything. It actually, overdose to fentanyl is, has more deaths right now, people 18 to 45, than car accidents and heart disease combined. And so 
it's crazy. But if you look down the list, this is where it's just all messed up. Like then there's alcohol related deaths that are down at like four or five. And then like six or seven, there's other drug related deaths. So I'm sitting there going, if you combine those, it would be so unveiling. It would just be the most like eye-opening thing if people could see that all of these substance abuse addictions and they, you know, screens, porn, they all feed down this mm -hmm. funnel mm -hmm. is the like light years ahead of the cause of death more than anything else. But when you look at it and it's like 12 million, 24 million, whatever the statistics are, those are known people who have either been to the hospital, been incarcerated, and they've been documented. Well, where do 90% of addictions live? In, in the, the shadows, unknown. in the yeah. in the unknown. Nobody knows. The only time they're getting these statistics is when, uh-oh, they overdosed or, uh-oh, they, they attempted suicide or something. And so I'm sitting there going, okay, we have an alarming number, whatever you look at. Some say it's 10, 12, 24 million, whatever. The number is out of this world. It's 10 times whatever they're documenting because those that are suffering are unknown. And so it's it's a terrible thing. And statistically speaking, you know, some a lot of behavioral health centers kind of split it into this third, saying a third of people will die, a third of people will go in and out of institutions, and a third of people will will eventually recover. But most people who are sharing the real and honest truth out of a business model to try to keep people hope, it's about 7%. So 7% wow. of people who de develop these, these life-threatening addictions, um, it's a pretty dismal number. And it's kind of been the mission of my life now to kind of change that number. I wish mm -hmm. there was a one, like a one shoe fits all solution to the problem, but there's not. Um, but it's been my mission and goal to kind of in increase that number. So as you were talking, I was like, okay, so this is, people don't understand how big this is. The numbers are mind blowing. And as you said, they don't know until there's an overdose, until there's an attempted suicide. And I think that's true of greater society. Like if you're in a church community, no one seems to notice until there's this moment. And then they're like, oh my gosh, how can we help you? And as someone who has dealt with a lot of mental health issues, myself and extended family and friends and all the things, that's always a frustrating moment for me. Cause I'm like, hello. Mm. The signs have been here. Yep. I've kind of been saying life is hard. Now you care. Now you care. That's always been a frustrating thing for me. So I think as a society, we have a lot of work to do to say if to to be aware of what are the signs and just care a little bit. It doesn't. Ha I'm not saying you take charge of someone's life because you can't. They have to make that decision, like your dad did for you. You have to make this decision. But noticing and caring can go a very long way, especially to the family associated with the person mm, yep. who's struggling. Yep. Like, can go so A, people listening, be aware. <laughs> be aware. <laughs> but then B, okay, so you're the family member and you've got this going on. What can we do? What can what can we as family members do? I think that's one of the things I would love to hear from you is what can we do? Okay, now you're talking dirty because you're getting me all excited. Like I'm like, yes. So real quickly, after I decided to put my life back together, I was taking baby steps. Finally, I got a job. I got a bank account. I got my driver's license. 
I got the courage to go out on a date. I got set up on a blind date. I met the most incredible woman. It, God stepped in and allowed this woman to somehow give me enough grace that she knew there was a possibility of me becoming a good man. We got married. We had kids. I spent a decade, right? This is the humorous part. Just like scratching and crawling, trying to build life back together. Because unfortunately, we, we need to do this thing called make money because everything costs money. So I went to work and one thing led to another. And as I plugged away and just latched onto God, he gave me one opportunity after the next. And I started just back up. Like I was, I had a college education, came from a successful family. And when I got out of jail, I got a job, $8 an hour as a contractor in the cubicle, cold calling people, worked my tail end off and became a, a big sales rep and the president of the sales division. And then the owner of that company, switched gears and went and started some restaurants and he asked me to join him again i'm still just a few years into my recovery and i went and did the only thing harder than overcoming an addiction to heroin and cocaine which is running restaurants oh <laughs> my gosh so we ended up being owner operators of two different restaurants it was the hardest thing i've ever done i mean waking up at 3 30 in the morning and working six, seven days a week. It was crazy. So we did that. I put away a little bit of money, but the whole time I was doing that, my journey, like what it included was being transparent and vulnerable. I shared my story everywhere, everywhere I went. I remember the first time I shared my story in church as a married man, as a family man. And afterwards it was, I mean, when you stand up there and I told them some of what I just shared here, I had a few people look at me and then I was like, oh boy, like they're, mm -hmm. they're probably going to take their children and protect them. After, after church went home and I was like, oh man, maybe I shouldn't have done that. I'll never forget that day. I, my phone had over 45 messages. People I didn't even know. I never spoke to. Oh my gosh, my daughter's going through this. We don't even know what to do. Like, what did you do? Oh my gosh, my brother right now, he's out on the street. And no one knows. It's only my family that knows we can't find him. Oh my gosh, my husband, he's been drinking, like closet drinking for two. It was crazy. And so <clears throat> I, even, I, I had like four or five people show up at my door that Sunday afterwards. Wow. What it taught yep. me was everyone, everyone had a problem. Yep. So I started sharing my story and I would go to families and I would offer just Hey, I'm not a professional, but I'll tell you about what I did and what my family did. And I, yep. I just saw this, this need. So I did it for years where families were standing by going, what is going on? Why can't we get through to them? We want to help, but nothing we're doing is helping. It's just actually yep. making it worse. So yep. we got out of the restaurant business. I went and got licensed and certified as an interventionist. I went from a very hard business that made a lot of money to a very hard business that doesn't make as much money, but <laughs> it, it is a passion of mine. So yeah. I did, I did intervention work for a long time. I did a lot of coaching with people in recovery, but what I, I stepped back in and did is what my passion is. So we created a program and a platform that it's, it empowers. What I say is the greatest threat to the world in it of addiction is a family who effectively learns to intervene and how to support a person in a full program recovery. So we created the playbook for families. This took me a lot of time, a lot of experience. I mean, I worked with, this sounds crazy, but I worked with thousands of families to get 
this information compiled, which is teaching people exactly what they can do, what they need to stop doing, how they're going to actually get through to this person that's stuck in this deadly trap. And that's the passion because like I said, there's not a one size shoe fits all. There are people stuck in the corrections program. There are people stuck in this whole, this homeless crisis, the homelessness crisis we have in our country is out of control, but there's a lot of people who do not have, unfortunately, a mom or a dad or siblings or anyone who has the means to help them, who has the faith in God of healing power and who wants to help. So I said, okay, I can't help everybody. What am I going to do? I'm going to go and help people like my family when I was stuck. Yep. Teach them what my family learned because my addiction of many years came to an, a halt in a matter of months. Once my family learned how to effectively intervene, how to mm -hmm. stand united and to stand up against the bully of addiction. Yeah. Addiction sucks. And I don't want to go on a tangent, but I spend every waking hour of my day helping people in these situations, family stuff. Addiction is the only thing that kind of broke this mold, right? Like we were given mm -hmm. agency mm -hmm. by God, but addiction actually removes a person's agency. Not at first, right? There's always this argument. I get a lot of people of faith get to this argument. Like, well, is it a disease of the brain or is it a moral breakdown? I'm like, who cares? Your loved yep. one is stuck now. In the beginning, like it could have been a moral breakdown. Mine was, I made poor choices, bad choices. But over time, those bad choices escalate. Every addiction is progressive and it rewires the way your brain works. So a lot of families can't get over the fact that they're just like, why is it, when is this person going to wake up? When is my son yeah. going to take the will of his life again? When are the consequences yeah. going to pile so high that they wake up? So obviously you can tell I'm passionate about it because I feel like, there are a lot of good people out there suffering. Mm -hmm. And once the family learns how to shift from living in chaos, living in fear and doubt, reacting to every crazy situation, and they actually get strategic prepared with a plan to help. Oh boy, it changes everything. Does it solve yep. all the problems? No, but it saved my life. I love that you said, who cares? Because really who cares? It yeah. It doesn't matter. It happened. So now we have to do what we got to do now. And I don't know a single person who has addiction, whether it's cocaine or it's sugar, that isn't seeking relief. Addiction is usually someone who is seeking relief. That's, oh my gosh. It has Can nothing I share to do with this? ego. <laughs> what you just shared is so beautiful and you nailed it because they're seeking relief. And what they found actually gave them that relief. Yes. Yes. So at the beginning, it was the solution. Like there, everybody I work with, whether it's like marijuana, alcohol, or whatever they used to start, they actually found relief in that substance more than they ever did. And I'm sorry to everyone, they ever did at church, they ever did with the medications their doctor gave them. So it's really confusing because they couldn't find that relief any other way. And then all of a sudden they found it through this thing that they know they shouldn't be doing. So sometimes providing, it does. Providing it, relief. Yes. Sometimes yeah. it, the onset of addiction is from trauma. Like someone was sexually abused, neglected, something. I work with a lot of people that are both that and like last week, a young man who is drinking and almost killed himself in two different car accidents. He's, he's never drank with somebody else, by the way. He's only ever drank alone because it, it helped him feel what he couldn't with anything else. But when you asked him why, he got so mad. He got so mad one day and he, when I, he finally revealed to me why, 
It's because he felt like he didn't get the playbook for life. This kid was so six, like he was so like beautiful and chiseled and athletic, but he felt like he never had any friends that cared. He felt like his brother, his dad, and everybody else got the playbook for life and he never got it. He just, mm. so that pain was as traumatic to him as some people that have actually been maybe sexually abused. People are like, that's ridiculous. No, because all he knows is what he knows. And yep. so that pain is just as strong as someone else. And when they find that relief, gosh, it's, it's a deadly trap. Yeah. 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 And it's interesting because you really can't put your trauma against someone else. Like you just said, your personality, your view of life is like nobody else on this earth. So how you're going to react to any situation is unlike anybody else on this earth. So you just can't even compare your journey to another. But I love that you are working with the families because kind of like I was talking about that caterpillar gooey butterfly thing. I think the family has to go through that in order to help mm -hmm. their one who's addicted as well. They have to learn that. And it's very hard, you know, survival mode sometimes is actually easier than living in a healed, healthy oh, way. Oh, you nailed it. <laughs> well, I, well, I've lived it, right? Like, well, it's familiar discomfort. Driven, and it's easy. Yeah, it's, it's survival mode is ego driven. I got to do what I got to do to show up to do the thing. And I will, you can justify anything in survival mode. You can justify going into debt because you just need to eat out every night you can justify anything in survival mode and i'm talking about this is family versus that those who's addicted but when you're healing and you have to actually face the stuff your part that you've played in this or your role at moving forward that's much harder healing mm. is hard it, most people would rather sit in their dysfunction because mm -hmm. the discomfort of change is mm -hmm. it's unbearable my, my dad did it for years and when he finally faced the discomfort and made that like just spoke to God and made that decision. That's when the power comes, but it is very, very, very difficult. So it, it requires help. It requires a lot of things. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from this conversation is the thing that I'm always most passionate about in the strong and capable is take off the freaking mask and be real because you're not going to get help until you show up exactly as you are, whether you're the person addicted or the family member with the struggle who is suffering in silence, thinking you're the only one. Amen. I, I mean, I, I've spoke to a dozen mothers this week, right? They call, I have this, like people can schedule a free call just to kind of hear about the program, ask some questions. And it's the same thing every time they're actually for the first time saying my daughter or my son is drowning in an alcohol addiction or a drug addiction or a sex addiction, whatever it is. And they always immediately, immediately, as soon as they say it, well, but you know what? They are the most amazing. They were the, the, the person that lit up the room when they walked yeah. in. They're the sweetest, yeah. kindest person. It's almost just like, it's so hard to even say it to a stranger. And so it, it is, you've got to take the mask off. I mean, here's, I don't want to go on a tangent because I know we're probably running out of time, but <laughs> Addiction is the only fatal illness on the face of the planet where families more often argue, disagree, or ignore signs mm -hmm. than anything else. Some of our, my wife and I's best friend, the wife, super fitness, like fitness model type of person got into a biking accident and severed mm -hmm. her spinal cord, broke her back just recently. This is about three months ago. 
This process has been life-changing for the whole family. She's learning to walk again. I mean, the financial ruin that happens from this, the support, the need to ask for help, the husband reaching out and gaining support from the community. But ever, as difficult as that is, right, the most unthinkable, grueling situation they were put in, they, they keep moving forward. With addiction, what do we do? We try to handle it in-house. We don't talk yep. about it with other people. We don't reach out and ask for help. We just keep hoping and praying and living in fear. It's the craziest thing. Yeah. So your queen circle sounds like some amazing women. And we need like a there. queen circle across the country. Because when people actually take the damn mask off, I'm sorry, and say, Amen. you know what? We need help. My mm-hmm. loved one is dying and I can't figure out how to help them. There are resources, which is why I do what I do because in any given state, like I'm in Utah, you're in Arizona, both of those states have a lot of incredible rehabilitation centers, behavioral health programs for people in addiction. But guess what? There are limited to absolutely zero resources for the family sitting there going, "Hmm, what do we do? How do we get them there? What do we do when they come home? How do we support? Mm -hmm. How do I support them without enabling? What are we supposed to do? It's all of those things that I have dialed in. Yeah. Oh, I am so thankful you're doing what you're doing because I have walked what you're saying. Those questions that you're just saying from a family, I have, I have asked those. Now, now what? That's literally how the strong and capable came to be. It was me asking, now what? How do I even move forward? And I think people hide a lot of times because (laughs) if you've taken off the mask, like you said at church, you did that and you share your story, it's not always a positive response. A lot of times people do back up, back up, back up. And they're like uncomfortable because what I've learned actually is most of the times they're uncomfortable because they have their own crap and Mm -hmm. they don't, they're not ready to face it. And so you admitting your stuff that they can't actually talk to you unless they admit their stuff too, because that's how you be authentic and connect. And so you nailed it. You nailed it. It's either that or they just kind of don't know what to say. Yeah. Most of the time it's because they're like, oh no, like I actually have a problem too. Like, uh, yeah. but yeah. yeah. Or, or they're trying to fix it and it's not theirs to fix. It's not theirs yep. to fix. So they're like, I don't know what to say to fix you. So I will walk away. And that is yep. extremely painful. You're already going through hard stuff. So to have that kind of rejection from people who you feel like are your people is painful. So I love, love, love that you have this resource. How can the audience find you? How can they get a hold of you? Because they they probably need this resource. They can, and I hope they do. You know, the philosophy is you can never get sick enough to help a sick person get better. It, it's in your thriving that you have any sort of influence on them. So on on we have an Instagram and a Facebook. It's at your living proof. So it's Y-O-U-R Living Proof. We also have our website. It's yourlivingproof.com. There is a free masterclass on there. We spent a long time and a lot of resources and money putting together this masterclass where people can listen their own pace and the comfort of their home. If something resonates, they can schedule a call to follow up. But truly, addiction is the most frustrating situation. You're looking at this person. You know who they were before. You know what they're capable of. And they're stuck in, in just this unthinkable darkness that they can't get out of. And you're like, what is going on? You've tried everything. You've, you've, you've threatened them. You've pleaded with them. You've begged. You've fasted and prayed your guts out. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. They, they are mm-hmm. stuck. So you can change the dynamic. And the elephant in the room is this. Like if you love someone addicted to these substances and your whole family dynamic is rattled, Everyone's going, well, why do I have to do something? Why do I need a program? They're the ones that did this. Again, 
so what? You're in this situation and they are sick. Yep. And if you think um, there's going to be a magical day where they just wake up and be like, hey guys, my life's unmanageable and I need help. That will not happen. But if you learn how to effectively intervene and get them into a program, within days when these poisons are removed, you can go have a conversation with them for the first time in probably a while. So mm -hmm. please reach out. We have a we we also have a lot of free resources on our website that kind of give people some tools and some guidance of how to move forward with these specific things. But thank you for asking. Yeah, thank you for coming on and sharing the story and just sharing everything you did. I, I love this conversation because it has been real. Let's just talk real. That's yep. we don't have time anymore to pretend. There are people yep. hurting. It's just time to be real about it. So yeah. thank it's, you. It's not glorifying <clears throat> what you've gone through. What it is is just acknowledging that we all do. I mean, you can read the scriptures yeah. and go through every great mighty person went through like the most difficult thing. So yep. it's in it's in discomfort that we grow. And I'm so grateful for the platform you have and the people that you're supporting. And gosh, you guys are creating something powerful. So kudos to you. Thank you. Thank you. You too. You too. And um, I will put all of this, of course, Danny's bio and how you can get a hold of him with all the links in the show notes. And uh, yeah, just remember, friends, you are strong and capable. Thanks, Danny, for coming on. Thanks for having me.